That's good. So I'll give this is something I was, um, I'll abuse the microphone privilege. And I was, this is something that came to me while we were worshiping this morning, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, some of you may be struggling with uh, sin in some specific ways, and you've got, um, you can't seem to get out of it, and you're frustrated that you can't get out of it, and you're still dealing with stuff. And the word I had this morning was that, you know, forgiveness is like insulin. You have to keep taking it. Um, and, and church is a bit like the blood test. You have to keep measuring yourself, and you're going to keep failing. Uh, but this side of eternity, you need to stick on the insulin. You need to stay part of the community. You need to keep taking part of forgiveness uh, to keep you alive. Uh, because abandoning the community of faith, which extends forgiveness to you, is kind of like stopping your insulin. You're doomed, right? And you go to a kind of a spiritual catatonia. So don't do that, right? Stick in the church. That's not the sermon, but that's your mini-sermon while they figure out the microphone. All right, brothers and sisters, we've been in the book of Acts for some time now. We're going to continue going through it. Uh, and two weeks ago, you heard about the Holy Spirit, and last week you heard about the Holy Spirit, and next week you're going to hear about the Holy Spirit. Guess what this week is about? Not the Holy Spirit. So um, he's there, he's part of it, he's going to be in it, but it's not, we're not, it's not the same focus. We're going to talk about opposition today. And so I want to ask um, this kind of rhetorical question, what was it about Jesus that was just so divisive? Have you thought about this? Half the people who met Jesus wanted to fall at his feet and listen to everything he said, and the other half actually wanted to kill him. Not like, oh, I could kill you, but actually like murder, proper murder him. I don't know if you've met people, like when I meet people who irritate me, I just remove myself from the situation if I can. <laughs> or if possible, I remove them. I'd like you to be transferred to here. Or, you know, you're at a party and like, have you met Toby? And then you walk away, right? You, <laughs> you, just, you just <laughs> stitch you up this time. So anyway, um, you, you, you pass people on. So what is it about Jesus that people want properly to kill him violently? This is astonishing to me. Well, um, there's something about Jesus, I think we have to agree, that creates a spirit of opposition in other people, in certain people. So we've got some reasons to think about this. First of all, I think we can conclude from the scriptures that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus says explicitly, my kingdom is not of this world. It's otherworldly. It has otherworldly ethics and otherworldly demands. It's an otherworldly mission. It's in this world. It's working in it. But its motives are coming from outside this world. It is, in some ways to borrow from Jesus' parable, a new wine poured into an old wineskin. Do you guys want to do something? Pause. Carry on. Am, is just, am I good now? Or is it just my voice? Well, I will project. <laughs> it is new wine poured into an old wineskin. Now, for those of you who are chemically aware, the process of old wine and wineskins in the ancient world works like this. You take a new wine, grapes that have been freshly pressed, you pour them into an animal skin, and as the wine creates its alcohol and converts it, it releases a gas. The animal skin, when it's new, can expand with the gas. But once it's expanded, it's done. It's a single-use wineskin. If you pour new wine into a used wineskin, an old wineskin, when it expands, the wineskin will pop and you'll pour the wine out. And so in a real way, Jesus' kingdom, the arrival of it, is a new wine poured into the old wineskin of the world. And as the yeast of Jesus' life begins to work and the gases expand of his otherworldly kingdom, things get uncomfortable and, in fact, pop. And it naturally just creates this opposition. This is a huge part of what Jesus does. Now, not only is our kingdom, the kingdom that we're trying to be part of, otherworldly, it is also profoundly disruptive. 
It disrupts the way the world works. So for the world, money is a thing that represents security and influence and freedom. You heard about what money really means? Money means freedom. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. That's what money represents for us. It represents self-sufficiency and being self-made. But in the kingdom of God, it is the poor who are blessed. This is against the world. For the world, power represents our aspirations. It's our desires. It's our sense of self-worth. If you have power, you have self-worth. If you don't have power, you lack self-worth. Right? A lot of people have low self-esteem, and they're trying to patch their self-esteem by power plays. Right? The bully is always someone who feels small on the inside. It's a patch. But in the kingdom of God, it is the meek who inherit the earth. It's anti-power. For the world, our comforts represent the catalog of all our personal desires. They are how we forget the world, how we solve the frustrating wounds of life and difficult relationships. But it is in the kingdom, it is those who mourn who are comforted. And as for the world, despite its posturing and its hopes for change, the status quo really does rule supreme. Don't rock the boat. Don't look too closely at global poverty, at local poverty. Don't look too closely at human trafficking, at the slave labor labels on your clothing. Don't look too closely, or you might become uncomfortable. And we wouldn't have that, would we? And so we work to preserve the status quo. We look away at the ecological exploitation that makes our beloved technology possible. The vast swaths of land are destroyed so that we can have cell phones. Status quo reigns supreme. But in the kingdom of God, we are told it is those who hunger and thirst for the sake of righteousness who are satisfied, those people who reject the status quo. It's not good enough to go with the flow. Now, the Beatitudes, for me, are an astonishingly disruptive set of ethics. And I want to suggest to you that if you make an effort to follow them, you will become an uncomfortable person to be around. You will be disruptive, and it will create opposition. In fact, Jesus tells you that you'll be persecuted because of it. All this to say that an otherworldly king is going to create otherworldly disciples. He's our image, he's our model, we're going to become like him, and we ought to be like our king. If the world opposed Jesus, then you should expect the world to oppose you as well. But here I have to urge some real caution. I've known too many Christians who adopt a kind of false syllogism here. It goes something like this. Jesus was subversive, I am subversive, therefore I am like Jesus. (laughs) Right? People didn't like Jesus, people don't like me, therefore I am like Jesus. There is a really deep Christian confusion about what the nature of this subversion really looks like. How do we operate in this kind of opposition mindset to adopt the kingdom ethics and bring them into a hostile world? You don't get to be a jerk and then claim you're being persecuted for people calling you out for being a jerk. Um, And this is where we get to examine. At the same time, there is nothing quite like opposition to make you stop and self-reflect. Hang on, am I being like Jesus or am I just a jerk? (laughs) And so opposition gives you the very field you need to begin to self-examine. What are my motives here? How am I doing? What's going on? And so let's let's dig into those motives and let's look again at Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John face some serious opposition. And from their story, we're going to draw four principles of opposition which help us to focus our intention on being like Jesus and not jerks. So let's look at Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read all of 1 through 30, which captures some of our passage from last week, a little bit of our passage for next week, uh, but this will give us the, the situation for this opposition. The words are on the screen for you to follow along. 
The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I'm going to pause here. I'm not going to do this, but you have to remember, Peter is essentially a hick. Right, so pick whatever hick accent you like for whatever region of the world you're from and reimagine Peter's voice in the most unintelligent voice you can. This is a, this is a game, but this is kind of going to give you a frame, like <laughs> rulers and elders of the people, right? Like, <laughs> this is not going to inspire confidence, right, as he does this. Rulers, we always see Peter, rulers and elders of the people, because we're reading scripture and we've got this King James thing going on. Forget it, <laughs> right? Ru- I'm not going to do it. Rulers and elders of the people. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, they just healed a lame man, and are asked, asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, right? They're they're backwater. Ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, he was lame, he's standing next to them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus." Now, the next verse is fantastic, but you have to wait till next week to hear what that's all about. So they face some opposition, and I want to draw from this four principles for us for how we navigate our own opposition. So number one, principle number one is you've got to know King Jesus. You've got to know King Jesus. Look with me again at Acts 4.13. 
When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is for my money. This is my favorite verse in the New Testament because it exhibits the transformation of King Jesus. They looked at them and they didn't see unschooled, ordinary men. They saw, wait a minute, why do these guys bother me? I know why they bother me. They remind me of Jesus and he bothered me. And I want, I want people to have that same sense when they meet us. That they're, they're seeing and meeting Jesus. They're not meeting us. And that something in there, like, what is it about this person? And I just love that the work of God has been so vivid in these guys' lives that it just shows up around them. It's in the atmosphere. It just makes me so excited. So the key for us is that Peter and John had absorbed enough Jesus that other people noticed the Jesus they'd absorbed. And this is crucial in discerning our opposition. Are the people opposing me or are they opposing the Jesus being manifested in my actions and my words? Is it my odor that's offensive, right? Or is it the odor of Christ's sacrifice within me, the living sacrifice that is offending people? How can we make sure that it's Christ's odor and not ours? I think there's a key way to distinguish the two. The person who is personally offensive is, in my experience, attending to something other than Jesus. Attending to something other than Jesus. While the person who is offensively otherworldly way is attending to Jesus. Let me explain. If you're thinking about something other than Jesus, maybe you're thinking about your actions. You're focused on what it is that you're doing, or about maybe the effect of your actions, about your face, how you appear to others, what reputation you have, about your brand, how have you created and cultured um, a, a, a kind of Christian identity, and how you're upholding that identity for other people, about maybe your heavenly rewards. Oh, if I do this, maybe I'll get some great heavenly... Maybe Jesus will like me more if I do these things, right? You're not thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about the things you can get from Jesus, right? That's subtle. Um, We can do these things. Maybe you're thinking about how you look in comparison to other believers. Oh, man, if Jim were in this situation, he would do this. But I bet I can one-up Jim, right? And, you know, maybe maybe I could do this and make him look worse. You know, you do all sorts of silly things in our heads. The alternative is to fix your eyes on Jesus and Jesus alone. We'll talk more about this fixing in maybe a few minutes together. Let's get to principle number two. So number one was you got to know the king, know King Jesus. Principle number two is this. You have to rely on the evidence and not yourself. In opposition, you have to trust in the evidence and not yourself. So let's look at Acts 4, verses 14 and 15. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, then conferred together. The evidence was next to them. Healed guy right? That doesn't happen. If you think about Jesus' healings, remember, like, people don't go through therapy. Remember, like, if I break my back, I'm going to have to go through traction. I'm going to have to learn how to walk again. I'm going to have to go through, like, counseling and therapy to work about the sadness of what's happened to me. Jesus, these guys say, get up and walk, and whoop, like, there's nothing. It's unbelievable how fast that is, and now here's the guy there. The evidence is external. It's not them that the evidence. It's something that Jesus has done is the evidence, Now, this seems pretty straightforward. The Pharisees and Sadducees are opposing Peter and John, but the instigating event is this miraculous healing. And the religious authorities can grouse and complain all they like. It doesn't change the bald fact of a lame man standing. It doesn't change that fact. Now, if spiritual opposition comes against your power, it will very likely fail. I'm sorry, uh, your power will likely fail, right? Spiritual opposition comes against you, you're done. If spiritual opposition comes against God's power, it has an ice cube's hope in hell. It's done. There's no hope for it whatsoever because it's coming against God. 
Uh, many of you know that C.S. Lewis, whom Gregor is going to be reading very soon, very good, uh, he used to regularly debate the merits of Christianity as part of the Oxford Socratic Club. Um, he was a virtuoso in debate. He came alive, and crowds would come together to hear him debate. Uh, they'd take the best and strongest arguments against Christianity, and Lewis would be there to joust with them. And it was this magnificent monthly event in Oxford that people loved. Um, at the same time, um, and whenever the, the more difficult the opponent, the more happy Lewis was, uh, because he liked a fight. He really did. He was the son of an Irish lawyer. So... Um, <laughs> All the same, he wrote the following words later in an essay entitled Christian Apologetics, and we're going to put this up here. This is Lewis speaking. I have found that nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist. No doctrine of that faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal, as one that I have just successfully defended in a public debate. For a moment, you see, it has seemed to rest on oneself. As a result, when you go away from that debate, it seems no stronger than that weak pillar, that weak pillar being himself. That is why we apologists take our lives in our hands and can be saved only by falling back continually from the web of our own arguments as from our intellectual counters into the reality, from Christian apologetics into Christ himself. So Lewis knew that in whatever subtle way, however small, when he successfully defended Christianity, there was a chance that your faith was resting on him and not Jesus. And he was terrified of that because he knew how weak he was, and he knew that Jesus was the goal, not C.S. Lewis. Uh, which is, by the way, a problem with many American evangelicals. There's some confusion sometimes <laughs> between these two. And Lewis foresaw it, bless him. Well, with that morning in mind, we have to ensure that our faith, our posture and opposition points at all times toward Christ and his work. The evidence that you cite may be your own relationship with Christ. This is how Jesus has met me. Um, it may be the documentation of personal change you've experienced. It may be experiences of the Holy Spirit in your life. It may be miraculous healings and deliverances that you can point to. It may be change in other people's lives. You know, I've not been healed, but I know a guy who has. And that's okay. You can point to these other experiences. But as much as you're able, ensure that the finger isn't pointing at you when it comes to evidence, right? It's the Jesus in you that's done stuff. It's not necessarily you. Uh, this is interesting because my ministry leaders growing up uh, in faith used to repeat a phrase. They would say, I don't heal people, Jesus heals people. I think it's really helpful, and I think it's good to be suspicious of healing ministries that are attached to human names, right? Pastor Bob's healing ministry. No, it's King Jesus' healing ministry being worked through Pastor Bob, which doesn't sound as flashy on a business card, does it? <laughs> which is the problem. So that if Bob falls, the faith of the congregation falls. Jesus can't fall. I'm going to fail. Everybody here is going to fail at some point. Jesus doesn't fail. So we point to him. I am also reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul talks about his time coming to the brethren. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Well, thank you, Apostle Paul, for making my point. So we have to point to the right evidence. Evidence has got to be Jesus, not us. Third principle. 
Know whom to fear. You got to know who you're supposed to fear. Let's look at 4, 19 and 20 uh, from, from Acts. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So here's Peter and John, they're in front of the Sanhedrin, this court, and they summon to the image uh, the court of God in heaven. I answer to this judge, not to you. And they subvert the authority of the court. Many people faced with opposition quickly get weak need. They don't like conflict. Some people like conflict, and this is a different problem that some of us have to deal with. And so they rapidly cave in order to save themselves the discomfort. If you're going to have confidence in your opposition, you're opposing, you've got to know who to fear. So whom, as the church, are we to fear? Well, not the powers, not the principalities, not spirits. We don't fear the darkness. We fear no man. We fear no councils of Pharisees, no kangaroo courts. We're not to fear the opinions of our neighbors and no particular earthly government, no earthly torture or loss. We're not to fear any shame. Instead, in this place, we've got a verse like Matthew 10, 28, one which we will not often find cross-stitched on a pillow. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The one there is not Satan. It's God. And in case you're under the misapprehension that Satan has a kingdom, he doesn't. Hell also belongs to Jesus. You get all those kind of silly people who are like, I'm going to enjoy hell with my friends. And you think like, I'm sorry, everybody has an eternity with Jesus. That's it. It's just one place or the other with Jesus. Whether he was Lord or he, he's, that's, this is the stuff. And so fear the one, capital O, they help you. That's helpful editing, right? Fear the one who has this power. My only fear is to be given to God alone, who has power over my soul, not to you and not to any earthly thing. Years ago, I heard a testimony of a young man named Dan Bauman, if you're writing it down, B-A-U-M-A-N-N. He wrote a book about this. Uh, he'd been a missionary in Russia, and he felt a call to go and spread the gospel in Iran. Now, as an American, this is not necessarily the most safe thing to do. Uh, but he had a Swiss passport, because he was uh, part Swiss, and so he, uh, on a Swiss passport, was able to go to Iran. And while he was there, he had a number of weeks of very successful time, sharing the gospel with some underground Christians and enjoying his time. And on the day, I believe, they were about to leave, uh, things suddenly went pear-shaped. Uh, they were... Uh, taken by the Iranian police, their passports were confiscated, and he was thrown in prison, uh, where for the next month he was, uh, he was beaten, he was occasionally tortured, uh, he was kept in solitary confinement, he wasn't allowed to see his family or speak to his lawyer, and um, he didn't quite know what was going on. He discovered eventually that he was under a charge of espionage. They believed that he was working for the CIA. And um, espionage in Iran carries a death sentence. And so Dan was working to be faithful. Eventually, he was given a Bible, and he was able to pray, and he was trying to he worked to share the gospel with his captors. Um, but in his heart, there was a negative fear, knowing that death was a possible outcome of this. So his trial date's set, and he's going to stand before an Iranian mullah, because the judges are all religious in Iranian courts. He's standing before a mullah. And while he's there, the fear becomes acute. He's terrified of his life hanging in the balance before this. And in that moment he has a realization, and God reveals something to him. He realizes that he has been baptized into Christ, and that means that he's dead in Christ. And he's alive to the world because he's dead in Christ. And in that moment, he says, I've seen him tell his testimony, he says, you can't kill a dead man! <laughs> it just released him fully from this fear. I can't be killed, I'm already dead. 
And so he stood up and he proceeds to preach the gospel to the Iranian court in that spot. And he is, he, there's more to his story and how he finally escapes and what happens. You can read it. There's, a, there's two versions of the book. One's called Imprisoned in Iran, and the other one I believe is called Cell 58. It's a reissue. He works with YWAM. He still preaches the gospel today. Um, you got to know who to be afraid of. And Dan learned. He learned. It wasn't, it's not a success story in the sense that oh, he was never afraid. He always believed the right thing. He was terrified. And God showed him in love, no, you don't have to be afraid because you fear me. All right, fourth principle is you got to know the scriptures. What have we said so far? You got to know Jesus. You got to point to the right evidence, rely on the evidence, not yourself. Uh, you need to know who to fear, and now you need to know your scriptures. Both before and after their encounter with the religious leaders, Peter and John quote two passages from Scripture which recontextualize their situation. For them, the Scripture becomes a tool that sheds light on their opposition. Now, the quotes they use both reinforce Peter and John and condemn their opposition. So let's look at these both briefly. The first passage they quote is in Acts 4.11, and it's from Psalm 118. Uh, And they say, He is the stone which you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, the cornerstone. We're not going to read the whole psalm right now. It's worth your time. Psalm 118 is great. It's one of the psalms that tells a story. The beginning of the psalm, the psalmist is in trouble. He's being opposed. He's being oppressed. He's suffering in some ways, and there are people who are coming against him. And the key turn is that he gets rescued, and now he's the exalted one, and now the stone which the builders rejected become the cornerstone, so that God himself is building on me because he's shown that he's rescued me. That's the story of the psalmist. Well, the implication of that is that, so if you're the opposition, the implication is that if, okay, so this group, this group opposed me, and this group supported me, and now God's shown that he was on my side, that means that if you were opposing me, who were you really opposing? God, which means you're in big trouble, right? And this is how Peter and John deploy this. The stone the builders rejected become the capstone. You, the builders, have opposed what God was doing And therefore, you, the builders, are actually in opposition to God himself. This is not a nice thing to say to the religious council in charge of a nation. This is a very astonishing thing to say in terms of how it changes and subverts this. So Peter's claiming now that his opponents were the builders, that God is building his great work on Christ, whom Peter is depending on, and that like the psalmist, they are now fighting against God. He's saying that the opponents are most definitely on the losing side. Now, this isn't, this is, if this isn't bad, the next part is even worse. So we look at the second passage, the one quoted at 425. And this comes from Psalm 2. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Excuse me, your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Did I just give that verse? And he also goes on, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Anointed one there is the word Christ, Messiah. So the rulers of the world take their stand against Christ. Well, the psalm, Psalm 2, which is another lovely psalm, outlines God's plan for addressing the wickedness of the world, specifically God's anointed king. My king is the way that I'm addressing the wickedness of the world. The world rises in opposition, God raises up the king, and now we have a couple responses. We can kiss the son, lest he become angry, or we can be destroyed by his rod. That's the end of the psalm, basically. Okay? So either submit to the son or be destroyed. Isn't that nice? Uh, and this now, Peter deploys. Peter now deploys this against um, his opposition. The world itself always has risen against God's ways. It views God's law as so many chains and fetters to its happiness. God's law as it limits our power, our money, our comforts, and our complacency. 
And God, says the psalmist, laughs in his power, appoints the Son as king, to whom the nations must give their allegiance and be destroyed. And in Peter's hands, and this to my mind is truly astonishing, he identifies the religious leaders of Israel as the nations. He just called the Pharisees and Sadducees a group of Gentiles against God. And that takes guts to do. And you only, only someone who spent time with Jesus could make an exegesis like that and get away with it. In other words, they are the ones who are fighting against God, who are in rebellion against God's plan, and who are in danger of being destroyed by God's anointed Messiah. Now, this is some bold exegesis, and we have to ask, is there any way we can employ text in the same way? I don't know if you've met proof text people who, like, they quote one verse out of the Bible and it's justification for their obnoxious behavior. Um, what can we do to ensure that we are not obnoxious like some people are obnoxious when they apply this? Well, we can ask some questions. Do we look like Jesus? Are we pointing to his work as evidence or ours? Are we fearing the correct judge? Are we, by example, being built upon the cornerstone, or are we setting ourselves up as our own cornerstone? Have we dedicated our allegiance to the Son? Is there in all of this even the slightest hint of personal pride in our opposition? I think that's the key question. In these things, we may find the beginnings of a distinction between being a jerk and being like Jesus. So as we draw to a close, I want to ask you where you might find yourself in this story today. And I've got some categories. There's probably more. Are you innocuous? Are you not a target for opposition because you fall beneath the threshold of your kingdom obligations? You don't register on the devil's radar or the world's radar because you're not living it. Maybe. Are you irritating? Are you a target for opposition because you make a stink about things and then take a kind of pleasure in it? Are you weakened? Have you been opposed and you feel yourself losing strength and you're in need of encouragement and restoration, the power of God's Spirit? Are you maybe uncertain? Are there seeds of doubt and fear that worry at your heart relative to the people and situations you've been led to stand in opposition to? Now, opposition's fine when it's the world. It's really different when it's your parents or a child or a next-door neighbor. Right? or a flatmate. This could lead to some uncertainty. Or maybe are you waiting? Perhaps there's no opposition in your life yet, but you're standing ready for God to lead you into the fellowship of his persecution. I'm ready, Lord, here am I, send me. But protect me in the midst of that. I want you to take note with me of the end of our passage today, Acts 29 and 30, Acts 4, 29 and 30, where the disciples pray. And this is their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Look at the opposition. Take note of it. Take stock. Because if we've quoted the scriptures right, then these are your enemies, God. And enable your servants to speak whose word? Your word. Not our words, but your word. With great boldness, fearing the right one. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Give us great evidence. Blow the minds of the world with the evidence you have for us, Lord Jesus. Through the name, who? Not our name, but the name of your servant, Jesus. And in this prayer, I think we find people 
who are being opposed, who are going to face more opposition, who know what's coming. And all the same, they place all their bets on King Jesus. They go all in. So it's our turn. Whatever place you may find yourself in, I want to invite you this morning to let the Spirit do the nudging. Let Him um, rescue your uncertainty. Let Him uh, embolden you in weakness. Uh, Let Him nudge you from a place of falling beneath the threshold of notice. But let it be His work and not yours. Oh, and for God's sake, let it be His work and not mine. Let me never be the one to push you into opposition. Let Jesus be the one. And let's have that be our goal. So would you please stand with me now? Um, We're going to enter in a time of worship and prayer. And um, you can come forward for prayer where there's going to be stuff happening. You can see it all going on. If you come forward, members of our home groups who are trained will come and lay hands on you and pray for you um, right away. Um, You don't... You don't need to have learned, heard a word I said this morning to want a touch of God's Holy Spirit. If you slept through all of it, the Lord bless you in that rest, and now come receive a touch of His Spirit. And that's all that we, we really want you to know Jesus and be moved by Him. So allow me to pray for you, and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you've given us such a bold example of people who have looked like you because they spent time with you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to look like you, to smell like you, to act like you, to witness your signs and wonders that you perform in our midst so that your kingdom can advance in opposition to the world, but that it always be yours, that we get to be part of what you're doing. I thank you that you are moving, Lord Jesus, in this place and in this city. Um, Help us to be part of it evermore. These things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.